Welcome to the Ed Up Worldwise podcast, a take on education, culture, and migration. I'm your host, Rajika Pandari. This podcast is inspired by my recent book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, which made me realize the fundamental role that education, particularly higher education, or our colleges and universities have played in connecting the world. These connections have become even more important over the past several years as countries and individuals have increasingly turned inward and away from each other. Conversations about why education is important in opening our hearts and minds to the world have never been more important. Join me each week as we go behind the scenes for illuminating and deeply personal conversations with diverse global voices international students, international education experts, migrants and immigrants, authors and artists, as we explore our common threads and the varied ways in which the world connects through education. How do we remain global in our worldview, yet locally rooted in our day-to-day lives? For those of us who work and live in the universe of international education, an enduring question is how to shape our lives in a way where we draw upon our multiplicities and our varied experiences. For many of us, this has also meant adapting to new homelands and cultures, as it was the case for my guest today. And for others, it has meant engaging with the world through periods of travel and education, allowing these experiences to broaden one's understanding of home and the world. My guest today is Dr. Vishaka N. Desai, and I can think of no better person to kick off the first season of this podcast and who embodies how education, culture, and migration fuse together to create a truly global outlook. Vishaka Desai is perhaps known most for having been the president and CEO of the Asia Society, a global nonprofit that forges closer ties between Asia and the West through arts, education, policy, and business. But she is also a dancer, an art historian, and scholar of South Asian art and history, and an author. Dr. Desai currently serves as Senior Advisor for Global Affairs to President Lee Bollinger of Columbia University. Our conversation today is based on Vishakha's new book, World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings, which is both a deeply personal book of her life, but is also filled with wisdom that many of us can use as we negotiate the idea of identity and being global. I'm also particularly delighted to have her on the show today because both our books, um, even though she, she first came to the U.S. as an exchange student and I as an international student, both our books share many similarities and were released just a few months apart from each other last year. Welcome to the opening season of the Ed Up Worldwise podcast, Vishaka. Pleasure it is to be with you, Radhika. 
thank you again conversation thank you for making time i know you are such a busy person so i'm deeply appreciative that we have some time with you today now you've accomplished so much in your life and your wonderful new book serves as a window into a truly global life so I thought I would start by asking you to describe in your own words why you wrote the book and why why now? Well, it's a good question because in fact, I've often thought about it and have been asked the same question. And it really all began because I had been asked to write about my story. And I said, that's boring. Who cares about my story? But it was actually at the time when everything global was coming under attack. And this is in the 2015-16 where it was really palpable. And I kept saying, why are people attacking this concept that I feel so passionate about? How did I get it? Why do I care? I also realized that that global was much about economic globalization. It was a particular issue around how even the progressives thought about it and how the right wing thought about it, which was that somehow global was anti-national and it was anti-local. And it was something about the Davos man, the Goldman Sachs man, extractive and all of those ideas. And I kept saying that that may be true in the globalization kind of an economic process, but that we must contend with. And then I was at Columbia at Committee on Global Thought, which is a presidential initiative. Lee Bollinger started that earlier. And we were getting students from everywhere. So the second reason was students that we were getting for MA in Global Thought, talk about international students. These are, I know often you would have 35 students from 20 different countries with multiple nationalities. And they would always ask and say, Professor Desai, you talking about global, but is it possible to be and globally responsible? And it doesn't seem like there's a pathway between the two. And that made me realize that I have to write this book because I have experienced the idea of global as a multi-layered one, not antithetical to local, not antithetical to identity that I come from, which is of course India, or the identity that I embody now, which is America. How did that happen? How do I look at global as a, as a multi-layered reality? And that actually, so the book is written much to make sense for myself as for the young people who ask the question, how do you do that? And how have I done it? It's one personal story, but I do think it's a story of many, 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 many millions of people their homeland, go somewhere, either by force or by choice. But it's also about people who are interested in trying to connect to the world, recognize that we live in that reality, but don't always have a sense of how we go about doing it. And it is a wonderful book, and we'll get more into that. And I love the notion of the multi-layers. So we will hold that thought because that's something I really want to get into later. But let's go back to students because you mentioned the students that you are working with now. And um, one of the things that I loved was um, this metaphor of the banyan tree, which is uh, a thread that runs through your entire book. 
And from the time you sat under a banyan tree at the age of five in India, um, it's been a metaphor for your life with roots tied to the homeland, but the branches symbolizing an embrace of different worlds. Yet at the end of your book, you are no longer sure whether, no longer so sure whether a banyan tree really describes the reality of today's young students around the world. So I'm really curious, why did you arrive at this conclusion? And do you think there is a different metaphor that we should use to understand today's young people? It actually occurred to me as I was writing that this metaphor has been so precious to me. Perhaps is not relevant. And the reason for that is that I had a whole lifetime to actually think about growing roots and expanding. Time is different for young people. They are simultaneously living in the world and in the local arena. They don't have the luxury of time. If you think of banyan tree, it often, I mean, the trees that I think about they're hundreds of years old. They kind of have a chance to grow these roots and they stay open and their branches kind of move around. So it's actually recognizing that the young people have no luxury of time. And banyan tree suggests time. And therefore we have to think about some other way to think about that simultaneity of experience that you live in and then sort it out. <clears throat> Possibility that I've been thinking about is that maybe it has many points of directions that it's like a world wide web. And it may be, and I didn't think about that in the book, mm -hmm. but I should have. And that maybe theirs is these threads that go in and out, but it's not even the web is not a good enough example. It's not many to many in a lateral sense because you need the depth as well. So we need it is like a web and that has the depth and the breadth and all of that makes the life much more complex for the young people. And they therefore often feel concerned. They con they're concerned about environment because they know that what happens in one part of the world affects them and yet they don't know where to begin. And that's part of the problem. And so they, in a way, can teach us how to live in this multiplicity of life now and with its roots that go down. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I think instead of just staying with that idea of today's youth and um, today's um, students, it's also so true that, as you said, that 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 luxury of maturity and maturing slowly over time is no longer there and you know we're surrounded by everything moving at warp speed and declining attention spans thanks to technology and social media so let's uh, stay with this overall uh, theme for a minute but i just want to re reframe it a little bit one of the themes of your book that really resonated very deeply with me was this idea of leaving how how leaving home changes us in a fundamental way both in learning about and embracing the new world we have entered but also relearning um 
things about the home that we have left behind. And uh, in fact, we both talk about some of these experiences in almost identical ways in our respective books. Now, what's um, clear from your early experience with AFS, and I should share with our listeners that you first encountered the US and came to the US as an AFS exchange student. And today you chair the board of the organization. So what's clear from the experience that you describe in your book and that of so many others is that the actual experience of being in another context for whatever period of time can be profoundly transformative and have a life-changing impact. So my question to you is that particularly at this specific moment in time that we find ourselves in, how do we recreate some of these opportunities to allow for this type of impact to happen, especially when in-person exchanges and study have been so severely limited? And what are, if you could share also with us, what are some ways in which international education organizations like AFS and others have had to really pivot and uh, adapt to this new normal as it's been called? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, let me just clarify that I just stepped down as the chair. Okay. So I'm an what? emerita, if you will, uh, partly because I felt it was very, very important to get the leadership transition and nobody should have this business of chairing something forever. So after five years, six years, that's enough time and it's time for, and we're, I'm delighted that we have actually one of our younger board members who has taken over as a board chair. Um, so that's terrific. Uh, let me go back to this question of pivoting. And I think that one of the reasons why I so believe in this idea of an exchange program or going from one place to another is that unlike even going to a college and being a student, you live with a family and you therefore must actually feel that you are part of a community that's bigger than you in a familial setting. And that forces you to think about what is your relationship to that other community, that other family. It's very true that not everybody has this opportunity. Not everybody can even do that. So what that does is to create a sense of learning that you have to think of family not just of your own kin, but a broader community, a broader group of people. And that creates a sense of empathy because you have to think about beyond yourself in this age of COVID, right? But then at AFS, I mean, this was an existential threat, as you can imagine. 90 countries, people are going every which way. Within six weeks, we had to bring these kids to their home country in no time. And it was in incredible to see the network come together and do that. Next came the hard part. And that is, if you don't do the exchange programs, what do you do? How do you do that? And we did pivot very, very quickly through the online exchanges and a journey which we had already developed as, what is this journey from going from one place to another? How can you connect to other groups of people online? Not the same as in person, there's no question about it, but better than nothing and also important. And it opens up for thousands and thousands of more people to be able to do this. So 
therefore it's a layering experience. Have a physical, what else can you do? If you, what can you do? Even if you're going experience, how might you do a virtual to get ready for that? And how might you use it after you come back? So there are a number of different ways. And I think that the silver lining of the COVID constraints, if you will, is to be able to learn how the hybrid, which encompasses virtual and the physical, can actually be a win-win. And what can that look like? And I think we're in the early stages of that. But I think there is a huge out complementing these two. And I think about that even in education as what we have done here at Columbia, you know, that initially last year we taught the students and much to my surprise, the global thought students, the brave souls that survived, they matter. And that is that global lives in our body. It's very physical. It is, you know, this pandemic teaches us that nobody is immune and everybody's talking about the new variants coming in. Why? Because large populations of the world are not. But the Secretary General said, Gutierrez, that let's face it, nobody's safe until everybody is safe. And that idea is very palpable. And that, I think, is something that we have to actually think about it, you know, engendering in our work. The second is that I think we need to think about how much we've talked about individual rights and individual freedom. You can't do that unless you also think about shared responsibilities, collective responsibilities, human beings as social animals as well as individuals. But the Age of Enlightenment focused so much in the Euro-American way on the individual and it's important, but not at the expense of the collective. And that therefore the title of my book, The Family, actually initially I was thinking, oh, you know, it's an ancient Vedic craze. Everybody knows about it in India, it's too cliche. And then when COVID happened, I said, that is a brilliant, concept. Because at least in functional families, we know that you learn to be an individual in relation to a group. And at the same time, as this Vedic phrase reminds us, family is your immediate kin. The enlightened ones know that the world has to be treated as a family. And what we know today is that our global family is pretty dysfunctional because we haven't learned about that interrelationship in relation to our individual, either nationhood or individuality or what have you. And that actually goes back to, how do we teach that at the university? How do we think about global? Because we haven't done a good enough job to populate the concept of global with that notion of layering actually is individual and collective. And yet there's something that go across the board that is another pattern. So we have to really be able to deal with that in that kind of complex ways. And I think that is a challenge. That's a challenge for the academicians. What are you teaching? 
No, absolutely. And that's really profound. And, you know, you, you began to sort of touch upon these ideas of uh, different cultures and thinking, uh, and, you know, collectivist, more collectivist cultures versus more individualistic cultures and um, really thinking of the world as family, but also thinking about identity within all of these contexts. So, so I wanna shift a little bit to talking about some issues that I care really deeply about as well. And again, you're the perfect uh, person to be discussing these with. So in recent years in the US, we've seen a surge in sort of quote unquote othering Asian Americans and certainly a surge in hate crimes um, against Asian Americans, including in the city that you live in, New York City. We've seen a lot of that happen uh, even until uh, just last, last week, I think. Given your deeply personal experience as an Asian in America, as an Asian American, and as a scholar in this space, what is this? What has this meant for you? What is this? What we've seen play out recently meant for you, and how have you related to it? Well, you know, I've actually written about that not just in the book, but also in several op-eds, um, because, like you, it's deeply disturbing to see that. And because the book came out about the same time, lots of people have asked me that question, and. I realized that actually some people say Asian American is a category, is a fictitious category, that it doesn't really exist. And I have always maintained that the reason why we need that category is whether you like it or not, it is our American experience that makes us connect to one another. It's not so much our Asian roots, because Asia is a geography, it's too diverse, too different. There's not a whole lot that we share, nor is there a whole lot we know about each other. You know, let's face it, Chinese don't know much about India, India doesn't know much about China. However, as immigrants to this country, and as people of non-Euro-American origin, there is a lot more that we share, American experience that counts. And that is exactly what's being attacked. What is being attacked is that are you American enough? That you are a foreigner. That actually every time the spike against Asian American hatred goes up is exactly when there is some feud or some perception of Asia, the continent or the country that actually comes back to haunt you. So whether it's who killed Vincent Chin, you know, in Detroit during the trade wars with Japan, or today, half the time it has to do with what the former U.S. man in the White House, the president, I refuse to call his name, um, really attacked COVID as the China virus. And the spike in violence against Asian Americans went up. Then you realize it's that and the exoticization and these combinations is about the othering of Asian American as not American enough. Even though it is exactly our American experience that brings us together. Um, so oftentimes within the Asian American communities, I have said that that does not mean that's your only identity. So that there's often a question of our South Asians part of Asian Americans. And I say, you know what? The census puts you together. 
individually, you don't have the numbers. If you want to make a difference in this country, come together to figure out what is your shared issues. And then there are things that are gonna be very unique to you, fine. And therefore, it goes back to the question of identity, that all of us have multiplicity of how we define ourselves. It's neither fixed, and anthropologists have told us for a while, that it's context. So I write about it in the book. And sometimes people ask me, and it's a younger colleague of mine who reminded me and said, do you want a short answer or the long answer? So I have at least six identities, depending on where I am. I am as much an American of Asian origin, an Asian origin person who lives in America, an Indian American, or an Indian who happens to live in India, America. And sometimes I'm an Ahmedabadi girl who lives in New York, and sometimes I'm a New Yorker who comes from Ahmedabad. All of these, I mean, it sounds glib, but it's very context specific. Depending on where I am, I feel that. And that makes my life a lot richer, but also confusing, conflicting, all of that. I'd rather be in that mess than have some artificial clarity. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I am going to now add another layer to this um, and talk about something that, that really interests me. Now, I recall very clearly, you probably don't recall it, but I recall very clearly the moment that I first met you. It was a couple of years after I had just joined the Institute of International Education. And I remember being introduced to you briefly and from afar admiring your intelligence and poise. But most importantly, uh, for me then as a young Indian professional woman in the US, what I was so struck by was your clearly visible, how well you carried your clearly visible Indian and American identity with such ease or inhabited these multiple identities as you describe it in your book. You've served as a role model of leadership for many women and particularly Asian American and South Asian women. And I certainly count myself as one um, among that group. Now, as you made your way through your professional pathway, you had to contend with your own share of structural disadvantage, being a woman and being Asian, which you just talked about. You write in the book, quote, I was often pigeonholed into a type. There was no escape from being seen solely through my visible ethnicity, even if that was not my exclusive reality, end quote. Now you were the first in many ways when you took the helm at the Asia Society. Could you share, for our share with our listeners what that experience has felt like for you over the years, how you navigated what we today refer to as an intersectional experience, and what advice would you have for women leaders today, especially those who belong to minority groups? First thing I have to say is that I feel very, very blessed. In that first 17 years of my life, I had a very rooted experience in a family of freedom fighters, Gandhiites, who were very open to different ways of being, and yet not giving up the Indianness. So that idea that Gandhi talked about is that, that let my house 
be firm on the ground, but let the windows and doors be open for the winds of other cultures come through. I lived that. So I understood what that possibility was. And I think that I, I recognize that not everybody has that advantage. That's number one. And as a result, my groundedness probably comes through when I'm in different situations. At the same time, I also have found that when that happens, I mean, this may be a generational difference. And I recognize when I talk to young people, often they said, you know, your thing sounds like you're just sort of accommodating sometimes. But sometimes it's true. Sometimes you push, sometimes you say no. And I feel like I just have to use all the tools at my disposal. And I didn't have any other role model. So I just made it up as I went along. Let me when I was appointed as the president of the Asian Society, as the first woman, first person of Asian origin, blah, blah, blah. And initially, when they started the search, it was going to be an open search, although I had been there as a number two person and I had experience. And I said, you know, I'm out. I'm not going to do this thing. So let them do the search. And then they came back to me and said, oh, we have this one president and a former ambassador, but I, we really think you should consider that. And I said, well, you talk to them and see if it doesn't work, then you come back to me. And I mean, that's the truth. And what the reason why I realized initially was that, you know, it's too many hurdles to have first woman, first person of Asian origin, and first person not to come from the policy side. I was an art historian. I was a director of the museum. And I said, it's just way too much for people to handle. And why should I put myself through that? I'll just go ahead and I'll do something else. And then when that happened, I actually, when the trustees came to me and said, those who really wanted me to come in, I said, please ask me the toughest questions. And indeed, it was on what people's mind, what was on people's mind, which was that as an Indian person, how will you deal with China and Pakistan? As a woman in patriarchal culture, how would you deal with that? I think all of these were questions on people's mind and I had to answer them. Then I get appointed and Richard Holbrook was the chair, was very excited. And he he was in the press conference and he quoted as he was quoted as saying that we chose Vishaka not because she's Indian, not because she's a woman, but she was the best candidate. And it did not sit well with me. I didn't know why. Not overnight. And Richard Holbrook was larger than life. I was going to contradict him in public, but I said to him the next day, don't ever say that again. They said, why? I said, because I'm a woman, because I come from arts and culture background and a history background, because I'm of Indian origin, I will be a different president. I won't be like the other white guys you've had. So let's not minimize the specificity that I bring to this culture and to this position. And partly, it has been very important to me to recognize that. And it is, in a way, the genesis for this book, which is to say, how do you own different parts of you and bring your whole self? Work, 
or to any professional setting that you do, because we, having talked to a lot of people who are in important positions in the business world, and I would always ask them, I said, what part of your Bangla self, for example, do you bring to work? And this gentleman who was in a high position at uh, Lehman Brothers, which is no longer there, and, and he said, gosh, nobody asked me that question, but I guess maybe 5%. And that made me realize that when you don't bring your whole self, all the cultural diversity that we talk about everywhere, it actually neuters you if you can't bring all your full self there. And so how do we bring that into our professional life actually enriches the experience of everybody as we go forward to own that. Absolutely, and such wonderful advice. And, um, and certainly those are issues that I've also um, dealt with and sort of how do we redefine leadership? What does leadership look like? Um, and uh, the fact that um, there are new forms of leadership now, whether it's uh, uh, men or women or leading by ideas. And um, so I think uh, you, you, really, um, you really laid that out well for us. And I think the idea of bringing being authentic and bringing ourselves to our work. And uh, in recent years, because of COVID, that discussion is also centered around families and parents, because many of us are showing up in our homes uh, with, with all of our other obligations and still doing the work that needs to get done and not having to hide those sides of us. So thank you for those uh, wonderful examples. So. As we move towards the end of our conversation, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to talk to you about the arts, because again, who better than you to, to talk about this? And from the time that you were a child, and as you described so beautifully in your book, your life has been grounded in the arts, whether it was Indian classical dance and Bharatanatyam or becoming an art historian. What do you see as the role for the arts and cultural exchanges in today's world where so much of our lives is being lived out through screens and shortened attention spans? But arts in a way are unique in our world. I know people talk about arts make us human. Greeks, that's why they said it was different from doing and thinking to make and that making is about the creative urge, about the imagination, about something manifesting in a form that's different from thinking about it or doing the work. I actually think that as, uh, as Arnafisi, who I quote in the book, a good friend of mine, uh, talks about the Republic of Imagination, that reading um, that was really about opening up the world through literature students who had no access to that world. My father, who was imprisoned by the British all the time, often said that the best education he got was in British prison because of the books he read, literature he read, and thought about the whole world that he had no access to otherwise. And then I learned that it was through objects that I actually, my first experience was at the Cleveland Museum of Art, working with sixth graders from East Cleveland Public Schools, African-American kids who absolutely had no idea where India was or who I was or whatever. And six weeks later in the work we did, 
all these dancing shivers and sculptures were their friends. They were comfortable in the gallery. So that art, dance, art, literature actually have the capacity hold multiplicity of meanings and stories within them and be the product of a specific time, specific place, and they have a capacity to transcend that geography and that history. And that becomes for me, the metaphor for global because it's that multiplicity that we embody within ourselves that we have. And it is to live with that seems sometimes contradictory from one to the other, but that is the beauty. And art is a perfect example. And I, I must say, I had not thought about it that specifically until I started writing the book. So as I started writing the book and a friend of mine who is a writer, he said, you know, I want to know more about your relationship to art. And that opened up a way of thinking about art that was really important to me. And that comes through in the book. And I think that today there's so many contestations around art, repatriation, social issues, specificity, all very important. But if in that discussion, we forget the possibility of art to also connect cultures, connect people like my sixth graders that I worked with, we would have power of art. And we have not done always a very good job about making art to be that because sometimes they're seen as only elitist and it's only some people who have access to it. So we have a lot of work to do, that's no question. But let's not forget that other potential of what art can do for all of us. And I, I bring that up in the book in similar ways, but I think that it's because I really feel it. And so it could be questioned, it can be contested, but the truth is, that that multiplicity of stories embodied in the object cannot be taken away. From global to the local, historical to the contemporary, and that's that's incredible. I'd never quite thought of it that way as you as you just laid it out. And in, in listening to you talk about the value of the arts, um, I have to say that I think um, it really makes a very strong argument also for education in the arts and in the original cultures that both you and I come from, as you know, there is such a heavy bias towards the STEM fields and science and engineering, which of course have their place, but there is a huge place for the arts and uh, the humanities in, in uh, relating to, uh, helping us relate to, to the current world that we live in. And in fact, it may be argued that even with all of the technological advances that we are seeing, we are going to need the arts and the humanities even more to retain a human understanding and a human element uh, within within all of this. So I um, think it's important yeah. um, to recognize, Rajka, that while we say that, we also have to think about how do we teach yes. art. The traditional ways of going methodologically, what is a period and what is a history and to make it so that it has no relevance to today's reality will not work. You do have to also interrogate the methodology by which you teach. It's not enough to just say arts and humanities are important. It's like, what are we going to do with it? 
Absolutely. So as we get to the end, um, I want to note that you've been a public figure for many years, and it has been an absolutely eye-opening experience for me to read your book and understand the very human person behind all the accolades and successes from the young girl who pined for a nylon dress when she was small to the Nanu Pakshi who assimilated with her adopted American family. I would love it if you would leave our listeners with two things they don't know about you and that would surprise them. Um, what might surprise them is that I take something from my father, which is that I cry at the drop of a hat. Whether it's about seeing something I find in a movie or I see somebody else in pain or whatever. But ever since I was a young girl, it was always like that. But it has taken me a while to realize that actually that was like my father. When I went to Bombay, he would cry, you know, it was like that. But he never stopped me from doing what I wanted to do. So the tears don't stop me from doing what I want to do. And that would be one thing. Um, I think the other thing that people might not know is that it, uh, hmm, how to say that? Uh, what I learned over time is to be very self-sufficient. And it, that has come in very handy in my professional life, but it doesn't always help in your personal intimate lives. So I've had to work hard to be vulnerable and to ask for help. Um, and it's taken me a lifetime. It is not apparent. So I say that to you. And it's and that, important to have both qualities. Yes. And it's so true that I think, especially as women, we are so called upon to have that very strong external shell and veneer that we are afraid to show those vulnerabilities. And you described that beautifully um, in, uh, in the book with negotiating some of your relationships and really being uh, open and, and um, vulnerable. I'm going to add a third to that list because I thought you would mention it, but I'm going to add a third because I have read your book and which is that from the time you were young, you were a huge fan of the Beatles. And in fact, your youth was very much spent during that very important period of uh, history and time, uh, both in the US and globally. So I will add that third to a list that Dr. Vishaka Desai is a huge fan of the Beatles. Thank so you so much. Yes, it's totally true. And so am I. I think uh, they're timeless. So thank you so much, Vishaka, for joining me on the EdUp Worldwise podcast today, where you've helped bring both the world and immense wisdom to our conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest today was Dr. Vishaka N. Desai, noted art historian, Asian American nonprofit and academic leader, and author of the new book, World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings, which is a must read. We also have links to Vishaka's book and her website in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Rajika Bhandari. 
As always, please like us, follow us, and most importantly, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. All information about the show and show notes are available on my website at www.rajikabhandari.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to delve more into the sorts of themes we talk about on this show, be sure to get a copy of my new book, America Calling, A Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, available wherever books are sold and through my website. And also subscribe to my newsletter. See you next week when I will be back with another conversation about how education helps open our hearts and minds to the world.